Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Got Mental Health Podcast. I am your co-host, Rachel Cove. I am a multi-passionate entrepreneur, author, artist, mother, and certified recovery coach. I'm your co-host, Arthur Mogilevsky, entrepreneur, girl dad, animal activist, and owner of AM Healthcare, premier substance abuse and mental health treatment program. With the collective experience of 21 years working in the mental health field, we are excited to bring to you a safe and fun place to talk all things mental health. We will be interviewing experts, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and professionals in the entertainment industry to better educate, inform, and inspire our community to have positive mental wealth. Welcome back, everyone, to the Got Mental Health podcast. I am your co-host, Rachel Cove, along with my other co-host, Arthur Mogulewski. Mogulewski, Rachel. Doesn't really matter. One of these days. <laughs> uh, well... I feel like I'm fangirling here, as we talked about when you guys walked into the studio. Uh, we have two fabulous, wonderful women here. Uh, we have psychologist Joanne Barron and Lynn Friedman-Gell are expertly trained in the treatment of addiction and trauma. They became pioneers in the field by opening Trauma and Beyond Psychological Center, an intensive specialized treatment program specializing for trauma. Both are trained in trauma resiliency model TRM therapy, neuroeffective relational model NARM, certification eye movement desensitization reprocessing EMDR attachment focused specialty, cognitive behavioral therapy, addiction counseling, psychodynamic psychotherapy, mindfulness, neuroeffective touch, and currently pursue ongoing training in interpersonal neurobiology, affect regulation, and sensory motor psychotherapy. Dr. Lynn received her PhD from the California School of Professional Psychology and Advanced Studies at the Wright Institute, Los Angeles. She also trained in infertility and reproductive issues in her postdoctoral work. At the center of her work is the mind-body-heart connection. Lynn was previously the clinical director of Insight Treatment Program and provides therapy, teaching, supervision, and, con and consultation. Dr. Joanne has a doctorate in clinical psychology and over 40 years experience in the mental health field. She was prominent in starting the first inpatient drug and alcohol program for teens in Los Angeles and was involved in developing and launching several adult dual diagnosis programs. She is a founding member of Watt, the founder of AYARN, and co-founder of Insight Treatment Program. Her years in the addiction field led to an understanding that trauma is at the core of most psychological suffering. Both doctors have been studying interpersonal neurobiology and right brain psychotherapy for the past 10 years and are members of the International Society for Trauma and, Dis and Dissociation. Welcome to the Got Mental Health Podcast. Oh, wow. That was quite the intro. I feel like we're done. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Did you guys get everything you needed? We're good to go. Yeah, That's it's so amazing. funny. We're, we're doing today's episode without our headphones for the first time. And it's, now speaking of like trauma, I feel, I feel, I feel totally naked, right naked and not safe in this moment without my headphones. Uh, I just want to start off by saying thank you for the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Thank you for being pioneers in this I, in this just world that we live in now where the word trauma is so readily available to use and thank you for what you're doing and thank you for having us yeah how did you start your journeys in this field well you know both lynn and i worked forever in the addiction treatment field 
And I grew up working in addiction treatment because of my own recovery. I got recruited when I was really young to work in addiction treatment. But over the years, really watching chronic relapsers coming in and out and wondering why some people can, you know, grasp recovery and others cannot, um, I started hearing more and more about trauma. At first, it was through people like Claudia Black and John Bradshaw years ago in the 80s who didn't really talk about trauma, but it was about living with dysfunctional families. And then in the late 80s and early 90s, started hearing more and more about trauma. And I just knew that that was the direction I wanted to go in and to study. When I was in graduate school, it wasn't even a study of choice. It wasn't even mentioned, really. And there was no somatic experiencing being taught in the uh, graduate level courses of the APA accredited universities. I'm sure it's changing and shifting at this point. But when I went, it was the, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, family systems, psychodynamic. And so when I uh, became a psychologist, I, I, kept learning. I enjoy learning. We're both blessed to, we're nerds. We love yeah, yeah, to yeah. study. We love to learn. And so we just started studying. I, I would say I'm a mind, body, spiritual therapist, but I realized I didn't know how to work with the body. And I'm like, well, then what am I doing? How do I do this? So we started seeking out ways to deepen our understanding because, you know, learning and changing and growing, it's a process of that work. And when I got clean as well in recovery, I knew that you just have to keep moving forward and keep learning and keep growing and keep doing the basics. And so what those basics are can expand. And as we learned more about trauma-informed therapy, the, the models you mentioned, these integrated styles of working with the body, the feelings, and the thoughts, and how that all in trauma becomes unintegrated, and we dissociate or push away pieces of, of that experience, and they stay in our bodies. And so we were drawn to working with clients, and how could we do that more than just on a one-on-one -on -one basis? Because we could only see so many, but we had learned so much about how to um, support clients in that healing and understanding of addiction and cutting and all of these other ways that were really um, adaptive to maladaptive situations. They were protective strategies that are now either going to kill somebody or certainly limit their functionality and relational capacity and seeking of love and what we uh, call post-traumatic growth. So in the mental health space, obviously right now, it's a growing space uh, from a public image. Obviously it's Mental Health Awareness Month and the month yeah. of May. And so I'm hearing commercials all over the place, advertisements, it's just a, it's a popular thing. Trauma has been a buzzword for, for the past several years. Everybody's either trauma informed, they specialize in trauma treatment, everybody does trauma, right? I, th I mean, I even, we went to a, a tattoo shop to get my daughter's ears pierced and it said uh, trauma informed, artist, which was very interesting. So for those that are listening that they, un they know what the word trauma means, but don't really understand the basics of what happens to you, what happens to your brain when you struggle or, or experience a traumatic event. Can you walk through somebody of what your brain grows through and then how that translates further down their life? Well, you know, first of all, most people or many people, let me say, come to us and they actually don't think they have had trauma. Mm -hmm. Most people don't understand really what we're talking about when we're talking about trauma. Mm -hmm. People tend to think of trauma as big T trauma, like a car accident or 
being held up at gunpoint or being beaten or something like that. Um, so there is that. And many people develop PTSD because of that kind of trauma, single incident trauma. The more complicated kind of trauma and the kind that really affects the brain long term and over a lifetime uh, is called complex trauma. And that has to do with relational trauma that happens during early childhood, infancy, or other critical periods of brain growth and development. And what people don't realize is that the trauma is not just emotional. It actually, early interactions shape the brain and the circuitry in the brain and the size of the brain and how our brains are actually going to operate. Mm. So if we are, if we come from an environment that for many reasons our environment wasn't okay. Maybe it's uh, maybe we had parents that had mental illness. Maybe we grew up in a war zone. Uh, maybe there's poverty in in our life, and so we're always worried. Our parents are worried. They're scraping to get by, or one of the parents goes off to work so much that the kids are left alone. Those things for infants can be trauma because it's a breach in the attachment relationship. And depending on how young the infant or the child is, they don't have any mechanisms to soothe themselves, to make themselves feel okay. So right away they start developing maladaptive coping mechanism, protective strategies. But it's not just the strategies, it's actually the way the brain and the circuitries have developed to expect and perceive things in a certain way. If my very early environment didn't feel safe, then I'm going to see the world as not safe. I'm going to see relationships as not safe. I'm not going to expect good things. I'm going to expect that something bad is just coming around the corner. So if that makes any sense. Please, go ahead. Well, I was just saying, and that develops in the very core sense of self and how one sees oneself. Mm -hmm. And so then you, you know, you're, you're five years old, you begin school, and you feel um, this sense of shame, like I'm not good enough. If I was good enough, my parents would have been able to comfort me when I was sad. Instead, they told me to, you know, shut up. Mm -hmm. or, you know, <laughs> just deal with it, or, you know, I'll give you something to cry about, or even that a parent is just not even there to soothe them at all, uh, because it's, it's a nanny who's there, or a babysitter. And so you go into, they begin schooling, and they feel this sense of not good enough, not lovable, right? And then you can add to that, there could be cultural discrimination, racial discrimination, there could be the ADHD stuff, which some say is a result of hypervigilance of trauma. We don't really know, is it neurological? Is it is it uh, epigenetic? Are you born with it? Um, or d is it a part of this whole nature nurture? But it, it develops in this hypervigilance of like, where am I gonna get what my needs met? I'm not gonna get my needs met and we can or just- Or I don't even know what my needs are. I have no needs because if there's no one there to meet your needs, often we have no idea what they are and we don't acknowledge needs at all and see needs as a weakness. There's so much shame about that need, it gets pushed into unconscious and instead the pride-based response is, I don't need anybody, right? And then somebody finds, you know, drugs and it's like, oh, now I feel safe. Or don't feel. Or don't feel at all. Right. That, I mean, it's, I want to emphasize what you said earlier because there's this stigma that, you know, especially like I 
grow up in my household, my parents came from Eastern Europe, very strict guidelines of how to raise your children and what boys should be responsible for and what they're experiencing or not. And there's a stigma that goes around that, oh, well, my kid's young, they're not gonna remember this mm -hmm. when they get older. And I think listening to what you're saying is that they remember everything. They might not know how to voice it or express their concern around it, right? But they, their brain will remember, their body will remember. In an age where we live in a very traumatic world, there's trauma everywhere. I don't, it doesn't matter where you're living in, in, this, in this day and age. What are some tools that parents can use knowing that your child is affected by it to help support and kind of, you know, provide that um, mm. safe haven in a sense for their kids? That is such a great question. Thank you for asking that question because <laughs> one of the most important things I think parents, you know, often parents have to work. So I don't want to condemn parents that need to work, but our culture is very much about achieving, working, building, and not so friendly towards families. We Parents need to realize the first three years of life are so important. That is when the infant's brain and neuroconnections and their sense of self in the world is developing. And so there's a wonderful book called Being There, and I forget the name of the the psychologist who wrote it, Erica something, but it's about the first three years of life. And there's a concept called the good enough mother. Oh, love right? that concept. Mm -hmm. Right? So what, none of what, us- What does that mean? The good enough mother means that it's a mother who is attuned to their child's needs most of the time or enough of the time, because none of us are ever gonna, going to be perfect parents. Mm. But the first three years are about being attuned to our child's needs. And often new parents will say, new mothers will say, I know what this certain cry means. I know this means my child is hungry. I know this means my child wants to play. I know my child is fussy about something. I need to pick them up being attuned enough of the time because that early relationship, if the child's needs are met most of the time, if the parent is attuned and can read the child's cues, that child is going to grow a sense of my needs are important and my needs will be met. Mm -hmm. And the world is a good place to be. I'm welcomed here. Now take a mother who's depressed, no fault of her own, but she's depressed. One of the ways infants form their sense of self is through the gaze, that mother to infant eye contact. And the mother is usually looking at the infant with delight. The infant's taking that in. And if you watch studies of mothers and children, you'll see the mother smiles and the infant smiles, and then the mother's smile gets bigger. So the feelings are being amplified in each of them. It's a, it's a circuit that goes back and forth. But if you have a mother that's depressed and blank, that infant's getting a whole different message and a whole different view of the world and incorporating that into their sense of self. And of course that happens, right? Postpartum depression happens. It's why it's so important to be paying attention to that. But a lot of things happen that we can't control, right? There could be things like COVID happens or a yeah. death in the family happens and there's grieving. And the beauty of it all yeah, yeah. is that it's very reparative. There's ruptures, right? A parent is not attuned all the time. So there's a rupture, but then you do the repair. 
right? Even now, my son who's 18, he says, well, I remember when I was nine years old and you couldn't put me to sleep because you were working at Insight <laughs> and he, you couldn't put me to sleep every night. And I, you know, I initially got a little defensive. Well, yes, two nights a week I couldn't, but the rest I could. And then I, instead, I said, you know what? You're right. I wasn't there to put you to sleep and I'm really sorry. That must have been a little bit scary or that must have been scary. And I just became attuned in that moment to the feelings he was now sharing. And that's the repair. That's where that child then feels safe to share their feelings and that they're gonna be attuned to and loved and validated and seen because we wanna be seen. We need, we need that. We need to know that it's a way of knowing that I matter and that my feelings matter and they're important. And so it's that rupture and repair. That's the beauty. That's where the healing is, uh, because you know, again, yeah. um, all kinds of things. That's happen. a beautiful story because it's true that um, the more we heal and the more we can become attuned to our children or loved ones, whoever they are, we heal in relationships to others. So as we grow in our own development as people and as parents, our children get the benefit of that and those repairs and being attuned now if we weren't able to always be in the past makes a big difference. Yeah, I I recently just listened to a podcast and it wasn't our podcast, but it was mm. another person's <laughs> podcast. How dare you listen to I know, podcast. right? And he was talking about something very similar and he said that in relationships the the three things that happen are connection, rupture, repair. Yeah. And I think I was just talking to uh, clients and group about this. I feel like I grew up in a time where if there was this rupture in a relationship, specifically romantic relationship, mm -hmm. that means the relationship is bad. And I think now there needs to be a reframe around this idea of rupture, this idea of fighting, this idea of arguing that it actually is an invitation for intimacy and connection if both people have skill to reconnect, to create that intimacy. So. In those moments of rupture in relationship, what? how would you guide someone to approach that rupture? What is the most important thing to do first when someone is in, in an argument with someone they care about? To me, the most important thing would to be uh, first ground myself. First check in with myself. What's going on inside of me? What am I reacting to? What is this argument about? Am I really upset with you because you said A, B, C, D? Or am I triggered? Did it just remind me of something from my past that I'm not even totally aware of? But I calm myself. And then once I am grounded and I am more attuned to what's going on, I can be curious. What did you mean by A, B, and C? I can be curious and ask questions. And I can let you know that my reaction was big, if it was. So, you know, my reaction was big. I just totally got, you know, activated. I don't really know why my reaction was so big. And I can own that. Lynn talked earlier about not being defensive. So getting grounded, letting go of my own defenses, being curious, and then valuing the other person's experience. It's like the volcano erupted. Oh, I just erupted. My volcano erupted. There's always embers down there and, and something got tapped into when it's sort of out of 
um, the, the right sizing of it, you know, and um, like Joanne said, being able to ground yourself. And that just doesn't happen in the moment. That happens because beforehand you've been doing the work. Yeah. You've been learning how to pause, to meditate, to do the mindfulness, to ground yourself, to notice the signals in your nervous system when you start to get agitated. And when you're in that um, sympathetic nervous system, the agitation, the anger, the anxiety, to be able to sense when that's happening and be able to ask yourself, oh, what's going on? I'm starting to feel out of my window of tolerance, out of this space within us where we have capacity to deal with things coming at us. That's so interesting. Can I pause there for a second? Because I really want you to break down the central nervous system and why we react unconsciously the way that we do. Because have you guys watched the show Beef? Mm -hmm. Oh, that was so good. Mm -hmm. I have been talking about that show in groups lately because it's so indicative of what we do in relationship, right? This woman pulls up, this guy's suicidal, he's really angry, he has all this repressed shit going on. Yeah. This woman beeps at him, he freezes, everything that he's ever been angry about in his entire life comes to the surface and he ends up chasing this woman and their whole lives fall apart from it, right? And I feel like that's a reaction from this unconscious, unprocessed trauma. Exactly. So what's going on there? Like, what is the parasympathetic nervous system, right? What's the sympathetic nervous system? What does it all mean? And what is window of tolerance? So there's a lot okay. there. <laughs> so, so where to begin with that? So what happens in the brain, basically, when we get triggered, when there's a response like that, the amygdala is firing, and it's really firing because it is oversensitive. If there, there's been trauma over a lifetime or over time, and it's unprocessed, and it's still stored in the body and in different parts of the brain, then it, when it comes out, it just explodes, as Lynn was talking about. The parasympathetic... Our parasympathetic nervous system is like the brake. It slows things down. So some people, when they get into an emergency or get triggered, they shut down or they numb out or they back off and they avoid. The sympathetic nervous system is the the nervous, the part of the nervous system that activates us into action. And so some people, when they are triggered, they get very activated. They are above the line and they go into rage or they go into paranoia or they go into all kinds of anger. Um, and what happens is the, the sympathetic nervous system has taken over and so the prefrontal cortex goes offline. So we have no access to logic, reasoning. We can't really talk ourselves out of it at that point. We are being driven by emotion at that point. Just to add to that, it's the autonomic nervous system. So it happens on its own because mm -hmm. it's autonomic. And so yeah. it moves into the fight, flies, fight, flight, freeze responses, uh, very animalistic, limbic system, deep level, primitive brain kind of stuff. And so when the fight, flight, freeze turns on, that's when, right, the prefrontal cortex, the thinking brain has disconnected. And so if you're a fighter, then you're gonna go into fight. All the rage, the lifetime of rage just erupts right up. You know, others are gonna try to run. Others are gonna be trapped and not be able to fight or flight, and they're gonna freeze. 
Yeah, I, I'm just I mean, I'm really curious because you, you constantly hear this flight, fight or freeze response to a situation. What determines that in a human being? Like, and it's, if you can explain this in the simplest thing, like how does how does one define either by responding by fighting or fight or fleeing or freezing? Like, what what determines which? Yeah, which which, which person you are and what response you're you're typically going to give. I don't off. think it's linear like that. Okay. I think it can be you know it can go different ways for the same person, but it's an evolutionary response. So that, for instance, um, if we're stepping off a curb, right? and we haven't had time to look to the left, but all of a sudden we see a car coming. We don't have time to think, right? Our body just responds and jumps out right. of the way. It's our autonomic nervous system, and that has been honed evolutionary-wise so that we will survive. So these are all survival strategies. And the freeze is also a response. So some animals, mm -hmm. when they're being chased in Possums. the wild, Yes, they can't get away, so they feign death. They freeze. I just find it so fascinating because we're technically all the same breed, but we all have different responses. And well, and maybe you have reacted differently in different situations. I know that you know, in an earthquake, for example, some people run out of the house, right. others just stand there frozen, right? But that same person who froze, if you come up to them aggressively, they might get into a fight. So it's really different, so, although people might have a favorite way. Of in in a highly abusive environment, there might not have been any opportunity for flight or fight. Mm. And so that person might have a higher tendency to freeze or even dissociate and just go numb because there was nothing else available. And then mm. that becomes the learned pattern. Mm. And in therapy, it's about opening up that that those channels so that they could actually um, experience their anger and be able to express it. And they call it in somatic work, completing defensive responses, like for the first time, maybe really being able to push someone away. And that would also be like sensory motor psychotherapy. Yes, sensory exactly. Motor psychotherapy, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like in our culture, dissociation has become another word that we use often in the world of trauma. And when I started to understand what dissociation is, I didn't realize how much I've used that yes. as a survival response. And to this day, I won't I won't even realize I'm doing that. And I think a lot of parents, how do I say this? It's like, I could be here with you. And I think this is where a lot of parents get defensive when, when their kids bring up their childhood to them. Mm -hmm. Well, hey, you didn't do this. Or well, what do you mean? I was there the whole time. But how is it that children can know whether a parent is actually present with you versus if the parent is dissociating well you know you see this a lot today where parents are on their phone you know they're nursing their baby and they're on the phone or they're holding their baby and they're on the phone and so how do kids infants nonverbal how do they know when there's connection right it's mm -hmm. the eye contact it's the prosody in the voice it's the touch it's the feeling very different from a parent who is just zoned out and scrolling through her phone or just dissociated period and there's no eye contact there's no verbal connection maybe they're talking but they're not using their voice to be expressive they're not using their touch in a way that is nurturing 
That brings up, sorry, go ahead. Well, we don't want to, and we also don't want to be blaming of the parents, right? And we really look at this in the angle of intergenerational trauma. We wrote a a workbook on intergenerational trauma because we're really looking at how was your parents parented and how were their parents parented and what is the intergenerational history of this avoidance or uh, dissociation or disconnection and what are the rules about, you know, anger and expression and all of that. And as you can get deeper into that, you know, we can have more empathy and we can decide that we want to break that intergenerational pathway and be different with our families and our friends and our partners and our kids. Um, And so, yeah, just adding that. I think think people needed to hear exactly what you just said. That one word, empathy. Mm. We live in a world where there nobody, I mean, I'm not going to say nobody, but the majority of the population is not empathetic to where people came from or how they were raised, right. or the culture they were brought up in. You might not agree with what they're saying or the actions they're committing, but you don't understand what they went through and how they were raised. And so I think that's so important in this day and age for people to have a bit more empathy, regardless of whether you agree with someone's position or not. So I, yeah. I wanna highlight that for sure. Um, I had a question earlier. Oh, the you mentioned that parents' presence is clearly important in in the raising of the child eye contact touch you know i have i have several friends who have children who are on the spectrum who don't can't have eye contact they don't they they don't have the ability to do so or they don't like touch they don't want to be touched what is some advice you can give parents in those positions who might not have the ability because of other ailments to their kids to give them that kind of affection or support or love or however you want to define it? I really can't speak to that. I'm not an expert on working with spectrum disorders, but I know that there's lots of good resources out there for parents. And I would just recommend that parents really, you know, use those resources, whether it's the regional center or there's lots of stuff online now and hopefully lots of new, um, relational ways to interact with with your kids but that's where you come back to that attunement because clearly you're not going to force something on a child that's going to make them more uncomfortable if you're being attuned but it could get certainly confusing i mean it's a great question yeah um, but would take those those specialists in that area to know what is the new research and you know is there some you know sound things that they're doing a kind of bilateral stimulations i think poor just started something just has i think it's called the safe and sound protocol that is being used with kids on the spectrum and it's using music and I don't know much about it, but it's really supposed to have great results with that. See, that's why we're a great team. I, I she has know. a thought. I have a thought. Right. We finish right. each other's thoughts. You so. can never be apart from one another ever right. again. We never are. Okay, <laughs> exactly. Our husbands are like, what are you going to do? <laughs> well, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I think it's so vital for everybody to understand trauma, for everyone to understand the nervous system and how it works. Because I was just working with a client yesterday and it, I, I had to hold back my tears because my tran- transference was coming up. and But he was, I think this was the first time he's ever cried in front of human beings, right? He's from the East Coast. You don't, you don't cry. Right, right, you're right, a man. You don't, right. you don't fucking cry when you're on the right. East Coast, right? You're right. tough. You can't be weak, you know? In their eyes, it's weak. And this client was so regretful of, what he had done because it was something so simple like someone dropped something on the floor and it was something important to him and he picked the guy up 
and he assaulted him so viciously. And he looked back in the moment. He's like, I don't know why I did that. Why did I do that? Mm-hmm. I mean, and I look back at my own childhood. I look back at why I've done things the way I've done it in the moment. Why I yelled at someone. You know, why I yelled at my kid in a moment where all he wanted was a baba. And I'm exhausted. I'm like, dude, I can't get up right now and get you a baba. So I snapped at him, right? And I did the repair, and, I, and I'm proud of myself for that. But, you know, it's like I really feel like, and I'm curious your opinion of this, that this is the root. This is the root of our problems in this world, why people become psychopaths and sociopaths and hurt other people. I mean, do you feel that way? Do you feel that way? I feel that, I mean, both Lynn and I, I think, uh, have come to believe that psychological trauma is at the root of almost all psychological suffering. Yeah. You know? And so, yes, I mean, if you look at almost any sociopath, all of these killers, serial killers, and you look at their childhood, Mm. um, not to excuse their behavior, but you can begin to understand what happened and why they were outliers in the world and why they chose to do whatever they could to make themselves feel big and large and live in a way that none of us would want to live. I I was going to take us back to the window of tolerance in connection to this in terms of, you know, when uh, most of us come into recovery or into trauma therapy, we have a very small window in which we can feel like um, we're functioning uh, at at an okay space and pace. Mm -hmm. And um, then something happens. And it, it spikes into that window. And it's like, you know, on um, when you watch a monitor on people in the hospital, the heart, it's going up and down, up and down. And there's a normal sinus rhythm. But with people who've experienced trauma, something happens. It bursts you out of your window of tolerance, which is the area that you can tolerate, your capacity to cope with what's going on. And when it's narrow, it doesn't take much to snap you out of it. And then you're either in hypervigilance in the sympathetic nervous system, anger, aggression, um, agitation, anxiety, uh, even a freeze way up here, or it could pop you really low into the hypoarousal, depression, fatigue, exhaustion, and another type of dissociation. And so in re- trauma recovery, you're widening your window of tolerance. And as you see my hands doing that, it's you can feel more of the negative, painful feelings, and you can feel more of the happy feelings, but you can tolerate them. So when things go wrong, you can tolerate that something's gone wrong. When your kid yells for the baba, you have a higher window, and you can tolerate that, and you can stay calm and centered. And so that's the beauty of the work is helping our clients tolerate a wider range of feelings and really also anchoring in those happy feelings because, you know, they're often fleeting, right? When we feel a negative, we can really stay in it and, you know, round and round and round. And like working with our clients, we also want to work with them on the joy and the aha moments and the beautiful moments to grow those neural pathways so that we can start to expect that good things are going to happen. Mm. That's a good point because our brains are wired. Everyone's brain is wired to really focus more on the negative, but with trauma, even more so. Oh my God, can you say that again? Because everyone comes into groups or sessions, they're like, I just feel so negative all the time. Yeah, yeah. 
Can you explain why our brains are wired for negativity? Because our brains are wired to pay attention to what's going to keep us alive, Mm. right? And so we're always looking for danger. So if we've had danger and a lot of danger, our brains are even more primed. And we're going to see everything as danger that Lynn was talking about. We're going to, instead of hearing... um, the tea kettle, we're going to hear a fire alarm. And that's why we react, because we see everything as danger. Imagine if you have never felt safe. I don't have to imagine it. It's awful. Yeah. Yeah. And these are a lot of our clients. It's interesting, right? Because it it comes with a balance. It's also a good character trait and, and good kind of part of your DNA to experience and understand how to react in negative situations. You need that. It's a survival yes, mechanism. Yes, it is right? a survival mechanism. So part of it is, yes, we need it. And the other conversation is how much of it, it and works how too often. well. Yes. Right. And, and not to invalidate <clears throat> if somebody's feeling concerned or depressed or hurt, like not to invalidate the negative feelings and move too quickly. Well, let's just look at the things that make you happy because that can be a mistake too. But it's like, okay, now we've looked at the things that you were upset about when you walked in, but can we turn the coin and look at the other side? Because we always have the yin and the yang. There's always two sides. So can we give them both equal time? Yeah, because on some, I loved what you just said, Arthur, because I consciously parent my kid. I mean, people make fun of me for it, how much I do it, right? And then there's this other part of me that goes, I kind of want to toughen him up, though, because that's the world that we live in. I don't live in a world that's all shiny, happy, and everyone's doing conscious parenting and trauma work. I live in a world where he's going to get slapped if he's disrespectful. So it's like this... I want to be realistic mm-hmm. in my parenting approach. And I think a lot of parents feel that way. They, they feel like, well, I don't want to raise my kid. to. They, they say things like this. And I'm only saying this because this is what people come in and ask. Like, I don't want to raise my kid to be a little bitch. Right? Like, how do you how do you balance both where you're consciously parenting, yet also setting them up for the world that we live in? That's a mm-hmm. tough world. Yeah. Being a parent is one of the hardest, the hardest and most thing. important jobs anyone yeah. will ever, ever have. Right? Yeah. And I think that the world itself is going to teach kids enough of those lessons, those hard lessons. And we as parents, we need to be attuned to what they need. And sometimes what they need are boundaries. Sometimes what they need is redirection. It's not just about nurturing. Maybe the first year, yeah, that's we just want to be attuned to what their needs are and be nurturing and meet every one of those needs. But as they get into the second year, their needs change. They need boundaries. They do not have the prefrontal cortex that we have. When does that develop? When, like, when does the prefrontal cortex start developing? Well, it's it's developing the whole time, but right. in the beginning, the early, um, the, the right brain develops first. And so as the prefrontal cortex begins to really come online, I guess more towards the second year when they can, they know the difference between right and wrong. And we can start to enforce boundaries. We can start to redirect them in in different ways. So their needs change. And that's part of the hard thing about being a parent. Just when you think you have it figured out, they're in a new stage, right? And you have to learn again what 
what are the best ways to attend to my child's needs. And as you're holding boundaries with your child, your child will then learn how to hold boundaries with others. So if there's a bully on the playground, maybe yeah. they learn how to hold boundaries. Maybe they learn how to, you know, stand tall or go get help or both, you know, so that you're, you're right. I mean, life is hard. Our kids have to make mistakes and they have to fall down and they have to learn from those mistakes. And if you prevent every mistake from happening, then that actually, um, you know, they don't get to learn how to cope with problems and create solutions. Right. But it's kind of like being there for them and being the resource and knowing that they have that that open dialogue and connection and your attunement. Oh, you that look upset. That secure base. What, what was your day like? And help them talk about it. Yeah. It, 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 I, I love that our society is transitioning to a place, I feel like, but maybe, you know, we live in a bubble being in California, so it's kind of stepping out of it. Sometimes you get a different perspective, but where, where parents are given permission to have clear and open, honest communication with their kids. Like, I didn't yeah. grow up in a household yeah. where you had that, yeah. right? Everything was as it is and it is what it is. That's it. Be seen and not um, Now it's, it's with my with my daughter, it's learning how to also be apologetic and admit when you're wrong. And, and yeah, yeah. again, not being a helicopter parent or just telling them that everything is going to be fine constantly, but having an open line of communication, being honest and direct and not letting their age or, you know, their experience determine how you're going to communicate with them all the time, right? But having that honesty, right? Um, <clears throat> that's how they learn. Yeah, right. that's how kids learn honesty. about feelings yeah. is, you know, through their parents and through their early environment and helping them to understand what they're feeling because they don't know. They don't, they're not born with a vocabulary of feelings and they're not born sure. to know what all of these sensations and uh, mood shifts and state shifts are in them. We have to name that for them. We have to help them un understand right. that and protect them, right? We, we Our roles are to be nurturing, protective, right? To have the spiritual center, some wisdom. In EMDR, attachment-focused EMDR, you build these resources for many people who, don't, who didn't have a nurturing, protective, spiritual, and wise figure to help deepen those neural pathways and develop them. But if we can be that for our children and our friends and our partners and, and find it for ourselves, you know, so that... Um, and that is important because when we're talking about an integrative approach to trauma treatment, we really are talking about mind, body, and spirit. And for those people that aren't spiritual, um, we're talking about a connection to their aliveness, to their the, the highest part of themselves, the part underneath all the trauma, underneath all the protective strategies, underneath all the pain that wants to thrive and wants to, to live. And we do believe that human beings are made to, to go towards health. So they, we all have this innate quality that if we just can clear things out of the way we want to heal, we want to go towards health and aliveness. Mm. Sometimes there's just been a lot in the way that needs to be cleared out. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Um, I, I have a question about your thoughts related to good trauma, right? And whether you feel that there is such a thing as good trauma I, 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 in relation to resiliency and character building. I don't think that there's a th 
such a thing as good trauma because the when we're talking about trauma, we're talking about a fear of death. We're talking about a fear of life and limb being destroyed or, you know, of someone else's. I do think adversity, there is good adversity, mm. that we don't want our kids to never have to wait or never have to hear no or, you know, there is good adversity. Um, but trauma in and of itself isn't what builds resilience. No, it, trauma builds protective strategies and survival strategies. It doesn't build. Think about an infant, right, who's not getting their needs met. That, that might not seem like trauma, but if the infant is all alone, left to cry, without anyone answering that cry, anyone paying attention, they, this is preverbal, they have no words, they have no thoughts. So the feeling inside is that of terror and that of I'm going to die, I can't survive. And it's so interesting because sometimes when we're working with clients, they'll be talking about something and they'll and something that doesn't seem like it is such a big deal in the present, but they feel like they're going to die, like they're going into this black pit. This black pit is going to devour them. And it stems from those early preverbal traumas where there was no help, there was no even idea about what was going on. They just knew that their life was threatened. I think just part of being alive, there's gonna be some traumas. I think that in a family where there's secure attachment and attunement and you know they're moving through life and things are secure, there's gonna be traumas. There's gonna be the death of a grandparent. There's gonna be some kind of car accident. There's gonna be some problem at school. There's gonna be a conflict at home. So those little T or even big T traumas are going to happen, but I don't think that um, like, resiliency is really rooted in a, a strong resource uh, and it, it's even that born with that that uh, moving towards the light yeah. towards the health it's like we're born with resiliency if you will mm -hmm. it just doesn't always get nurtured it's interesting because I, I look at it from like the perspective of like what we went through in the past three four years mm -hmm. right with COVID yeah. and just as a business owner as a as somebody who's managed large teams had to go through breakouts of COVID in your property, in your in the programs, really just figuring out where to get masks, how to do this, how to do that, right? I felt like that's that was a very traumatic period for, I'm just giving the perspective of a business owner, but there's a lot of other perspectives where I believe that we as an organization or as people have grown from mm. and the next time something like that occurs i'm not saying as an infant and yeah, not knowing how to yeah, deal with yeah. it but as an adult that was a traumatic experience mm. learning from how we were able to you know come through it and come together and and work through difficult times that we never could imagine and the right. next time if it happens again our response would be different. Right. Well, one but, of the things I think that's important about that is that that's where the idea of complex trauma comes in. Mm. Because you can go through trauma. A lot of people can go through trauma and they do not develop PTSD. Mm. People that do develop PTSD often have had childhood trauma because the right. circuitry is already set up for trauma. So people, that's why right now in mental health, we are seeing 
I mean, almost every therapist I know is overbooked. Almost every treatment center is overbooked. And I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. Mm. I think we're going to start seeing over the next few years the children, the teens that, you know, were home for two years. And even the infants who their parents weren't talking about it, maybe, or they didn't understand, but they could feel that, wow, mom's really scared and dad's scared and everything's changing and we're uns- there's uncertainty in the air all the time sounds like you were blessed to have a really good community that you guys that you all came together as a team and supported each other and problem solved together and grew together and right. it was really affirming to see what you'd done and right. to feel that you did a good job. Oh, no, yeah, no, I'm, I'm yeah. just... Yeah, but those you. who were isolated and on their own, I think that's what we're seeing, this complexity and deeper trauma of all the clients that we're serving now in the world and the teenagers in the high schools and, you know... And the people that already had a traumatic past or had trauma in their past are the ones, I think, that were really going to see um, reactions to what has yeah. happened. What makes trauma complex versus just having regular trauma? <laughs> That's a good question. Yes, I was regular about that. trauma. <laughs> um, well, regular trauma we really usually refer to as you know single incident trauma, but complex trauma is trauma that doesn't have a beginning or an end. It happens over time, over and over and over and over again, and the complexity is because we and. When I say we, I'm talking about myself and other people that have um, experienced trauma. When the brain is um, develops in a certain way because of early trauma, these people, we tend to get ourselves into situations over and over again that are also traumatic. And you may have seen this in your clients. They don't have the same awareness of what danger is, or they have a high tolerance to danger. So they willingly walk into dangerous situations that other people would not. So they're re-traumatized over and over and over. Is this, I think this is a very big buzzword right now too, is this why people tend to trauma bond? Yes. So can you explain what trauma bonding is? Well, it's people that come together because their traumas kind of fit each other. They kind of match. Um, So one person maybe has been traumatized by abandonment, and another person, the way they act out their trauma is through uh, insecure attachment, avoidant attachment and insecure attachment. I feel like they always come together. They always And they mesh like bike gears, unconsciously finding that person that's actually probably going to reenact your trauma because that's where our neurobiology, the neural pathways, that's what we know, and so we unconsciously seek it. And then our surprise it's, that we've just it's reenacted. So the fascinating same. because you hear this over and over yes. again with clients, right? Like, oh no, I just met someone. They're so different, and on the outside they look different and they look healthy, but somehow energetically, people are drawn to a partner that feels like home. Right? Is that because? So if it feels like right. home and home was dysfunctional, that's what we're going to bond to. Right. And, And in a way, that helps us unconsciously keep the love we had for that early childhood family. The attachment to that family is safe because we're repeating the same patterns. And it's 
so I'm a big believer in energy. And I think that a lot of this comes unconsciously. Like you yeah, don't have control of, of who you, right. like your body's just, your energy is going to be attracted to that same energy yeah. without, you know what I mean? Right, and so that's complex. The, right, it's but so... the consciousness comes in with the mindfulness and is there a red flag? Does your gut sense some red flag that you're gonna overlook? Or in recovery, are you going to go, huh, what was that red flag? <laughs> yeah, but if you're anything like me or people who have those backgrounds, like, ooh, red flag, yeah, yummy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's, let's do something. That's, right, that's the, that's the thing. It's yeah. like your gut's going to give you the answer right away. The, the question is whether you're going to listen to it or not. Yeah, that's that's trauma treatment. Yeah. But know. also red flags feel like home. That's yeah, what some people say. Red flags feel like home. Yeah. Red flags feel like love. And so... How do we change that? And that's very complex. And that is yeah. trauma treatment. That yeah. is yeah. the relational healing that happens slowly, long term, over time, as we provide new experiences, new relational experiences mm -hmm. between therapist and client, right brain to right brain. How important is it when someone is seeking help with their trauma that their either significant others or family members that are very close to them are simultaneously getting help for themselves for their trauma, right? Because I'm thinking about it, interge intergenerational trauma. This can go on forever. It can go back to my ancestors who lived in, you know, wherever. Yeah. How do I, like, it, it, it becomes encumbersome and, and difficult to process, right? So is it is it something that you, you inform your clients that it'd be a good idea? Do you focus just on the client themselves? like? What's the message that we're, we're, we're kind of sharing out there? Well, th here's the ideal situation is that client would be in therapy and their partner would be in therapy. And then when the time's right, they would do couples therapy. Right. You know, the financial burden of that is problematic. Right. Um, that's why we hope like our workbook, you know, couples can do it together and look at your intergenerational stuff and my intergenerational stuff. And then whoever is in therapy works on that stuff. But it's almost like in 12-step in recovery as well. You know, one partner starts to change. The alcoholic gets, or, you know, gets clean and sober. And then they want something different. And the partner sometimes wants that other person back. And so it, it does become complicated. And they probably will need some couples counseling or some type of work as a family or if they can do it on their own in terms of, I'm noticing this, I'm changing this, I notice when I do this that this is the reaction, and to be able to be, you know, again, it's always that mindfulness, which is also a buzzword, but, you know, to be able to pause, to be able to go, what's happening right now between us in this room? Is it just you and me, or is it all of our, you know, our parents are in here too? And to really be able to, like, it's like a log jam of information happening, of energy, and to be able to take that log jam and, and log by log, separate it out so we see what's here, what's pure between you and me. You know, what is our connection? Okay, now what is that issue? And how do we separate it out from our last relationship or our family relationship? And really being able to slow it down and like what's here and now and what's the past? Mm. Mm. Fascinating stuff. I feel like instead of like expanding the 405 freeway by one lane, we should have used those funds to give money to people to seek help for trauma care. I, I mean, like that would be such a way better resource of our yeah. funds. Um, I, I appreciate you mentioning that both of you are in recovery and that's 
Um, so again, thank you. And, and, and I think that that goes a long way. And, and I know that a lot of listeners are either in the substance use space or struggle with substance use issues. I always have this dilemma of when to start trauma treatment when you're struggling with substances. Right. Obviously not as you're actively using, but what is a perfect time to really, and that could be with somatic experiencing with EMDR. I mean, there's a lot of different modalities out there, but in your expertise, when is the best time to for your brain to start that form of treatment? Well, that's a good question because so many dual diagnosis programs now are trauma-informed or treating trauma. But yeah, I think um, in very early recovery, we have to be really careful. And so we, what we want to do, hopefully in early recovery, is educate clients about their trauma. Um, a lot of people going in for addiction treatment, if you start talking to them about trauma, they'll be like, I don't have any trauma. That didn't bother me. What are you talking about? They're, no, no, I just grew up that way. That's just the way it was. And so we start to educate them about trauma and what might have helped them to um, have these protective strategies. EMDR, we have to be really careful because we can start the grounding and the resourcing, but until we do that, until we really have clients in a place that they are safe enough and can return to some kind of window of tolerance easily, we're just gonna re-traumatize them. And we've yeah. had lots of clients come to us from other programs that have had that experience of people just jumping in with the reprocessing too quickly. So we can start to teach them some grounding techniques, some resourcing techniques. We can start to do some psychoeducation about what trauma is, what triggers are, you know, pausing, these kinds of simple things, mindfulness, but really it, waiting to get into the reprocessing and the real deep trauma work until sometime later. The early phase is really the stabilization Right. And so, you know, I, I don't know the magic number, like is 30 days stable, sure. but even in that early recovery, the resource building and EMDR, that is the beginning stages of EMDR is the resource building. So just getting in there, where, get, giving that, helping them develop a calm place. As I said, the nurturing figures, the protective figures, you know, really just the mindfulness, the working on, the, like John said, the psychoeducation and helping them start to develop a wider window of tolerance. Um, we accept people into our programs at approximately like 30 days okay. sober. We want some sobriety and we'll work with it. We'll do drug testing if, if that helps. And we have addiction specialists, but we want clients to be able to be able to um, not become too overstimulated by um, beginning the trauma therapy component too soon. Do you believe that one can get to a point where a stimulus is neutralized? Like where it doesn't activate you anymore? Well, yeah, you hear that all the time, right? Clients come into the office and they're talking to you about the most horrific things and they're just blank, right? They have no feeling connected to it. It's so dissociated. I guess I mean like in the treatment of it, like it, like I guess for, I'll use me for an example, like loud noises. I'm notorious for this. If I'm in the car and there's someone drops something so subtle, I'm like, ah, yeah. what's going on, right? Yeah. 
is there ever a point where one could be neutralized to oh, sure. a stimulus? That's what I meant by yes, that. Sure, yeah, sure. it can be extinguished over time. Well, that's so exciting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you're no longer dominated by this yeah. outside yes. stimulus. Yes, you can yes, walk yes. free. Yeah. And I think that's what's so empowering about this work. Yeah, part of it is is through the present moment experience, we don't even have to go to the past. Through the present moment of experience, we can use like a, a mind-body dialogue. What mm -hmm. body, what just happened to you? Why did you jump? What did you think happened? You were just showing me your fear. What are we afraid of? And like, what can, what's in the present moment? And can you bridge back? And what in the past? Is there a loud noise you remember that startled you? And like, wait, oh, now the adult you is grounded. And so there's a way in which we can um, reprocess the trauma that set in motion that stimulant response and um, be able to soothe yourself so you hear a loud noise. It's a loud noise. It doesn't mean death. Yeah. I wish, I wish everybody had an opportunity to go through, I would say, intensive program but also a program that was catered to where they are in life and and seek and getting that help unfortunately we live in a world where not everybody can go away for 30 days or 90 days and they can't wait to get to a place where their mind is comfortable enough to start working with through the trauma and so it's a tough situation right a lot of people are in this position and so to be able to seek that help you know, us as professionals are always trying to find creative ways and modalities to really help the individual. I, I, I personally, you know, I think that there, there isn't one fits all type of solution. I think that's why the both of you and your, your wonderful program have so many different modalities and you meet the client where they're at and you structure your programs. Um, I'd love to get your take and your thoughts and ideas about up and coming, uh, plant-based treatments mm. with ketamine and, and psilocybin and in the treatment of PTSD with veteran for veterans and even if you're not a veteran like what are your thoughts on that because you guys specialize in so much um, I'd love to get your take on that well you know currently we do not use that at our treatment center but we are having a webinar this month on uh, talking about psychedelic assisted therapies so you know I'm open to whatever works I would like to see I, I haven't even began to research and uh, study and learn more about it but I do have a close friend who actually is a researcher and has looked at and re even written some of the manuals for psychedelic assisted therapy. And so what I think is right now it's kind of like the Wild West mm. because we, we've had some experience with people that are seeking ketamine treatment while they're in treatment with us at Trauma and Beyond, and it's been not good um, mm. because people who are addicts are being prescribed ketamine and they're taking it home and it makes them feel better. They're so it, yeah. they abuse it. They use it again and again and again. And I've had a client that had to go to the hospital because of that. So the question is, is it the provider that's messed up or is it the actual, the plant-based the protocol? Yeah, yeah. It's, so I, that's not I even think an that's approved imp protocol. Right. So I think that's important to define because I don't think it's the, the plant itself. Yes. It's the person who's prescribing it or setting up the structure around it or 
either assessing whether a client is appropriate for right. the time of their care. Right, it could be care. contraindicated for some clients. Correct. I think that's very clear. Yeah. So it's something to be entered very cautiously, but also by the providers that are the psychiatrists and you go to their office and, you know. You get it intravenously. That's really the approved protocol. Um, it's not, it really wasn't meant to send home with Take people. it home and sniff yeah, it whenever you want. Whenever right, you, right, right. Take it at night yeah. or so, morning, wherever so you So again, want. we're not, this is beyond the scope of our specialty. We're just getting involved now because we're being forced to, mm -hmm. because it's, it's, it's a, everywhere in the community. And so right. we want to know. We've had some negative experiences at our program, but it doesn't mean that it's negative. Again, if you have the right providers. Exactly, exactly, and the right client. I do wonder, and again, this is not in our scope, um, but I wonder about ketamine for some of our clients because they are, they have so much dissociation anyway, and then ketamine is a dissociative agent, and I wonder how that works, but I know the literature uh, is very promising, and I know that with uh, psilocybin and mushrooms, the literature is very promising, so I'm open. I'd like to, to see more. We want to learn more. Yeah. We before we we, you know. Of course, no. I'll start offering. I'm like, I want some. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see what it's like. <laughs> no, and and, and and I start questioning the longevity of that treatment, right? Because I know quite a few people that have gone through a ketamine clinic or protocol, and it did wonders for them, right? But then you ask them where they're at six months or a year down the line. And, and they didn't do anything, any follow-up care after that. It's like, where are you at now, yeah. right? And so how often do you have to go back? And mm -hmm. I, I think it's a fascinating world, especially since we're in the space of substance abuse where, mm -hmm. you know, even talking about it has been a very dark and very kind of very black and white very thing, either white, yes, yes or no, and that's right. it, right? And I, I don't think we can we should approach it that I way. Agree. I think we should be empathetic right. to that. There are other modalities that we might not agree with because of our own personal experiences, but I do agree that it is tending to, like most things, be abused by the system right. or by the clients right. or, you know, and so it's a fascinating space. I think it, hopefully it kind of works its way out and not too many people are harmed by that. Well, the thing is, you know, <clears throat> there's always a new trend, a new medication, a new sure. magic right. bullet. Um, I'm for whatever helps people, right. but I do believe that we're not going to find a magic bullet for right. all people, for all cases, for all times. Can you imagine if they did? We would all yeah. be out of work. I know, right? <laughs> right. Well, I think in my own research of it, like you, your main thing that you wanted to talk about today was how do I integrate this stuff? Yes. Mm -hmm. So I think that is why it's so important if you are choosing to do any type of psychedelic assistive therapy that you're doing it with someone who knows how to help you integrate That's whatever right. happened in a session same thing with the mdr same thing with right. every type of therapy exactly. how do you integrate what you're learning so that you're actually empowering yourself in the world yeah, that's a good point because so yeah. you know so so often people are just getting the whatever it is the ketamine or whatever it sure. is and they're not sitting with a therapist or a guide or someone really helping them understand and process. Yeah, well, that was the whole thing with Suboxone as well. I mean, with methadone, at least if you go to a clinic, you're required to do therapy. With Suboxone, you don't have to do anything; right. you just walk in, get your prescriptions, and walk out. But I think they're changing that now. But. Um, I, we so appreciate having both of you. I mean, just a wealth of knowledge. I, I have millions of other questions, which I'm not going to be able to get to. So we'd love to have you guys back on. Oh. How can 
the community find you? What is the best way of contacting your programs? Can you please speak to that? Yeah, we have a website. It's uh, www.traumaandbeyondcenter.com. And so that would be a good way to find us. Wonderful. Go ahead. <laughs> By the way, you guys are seriously like, I feel like I'm talking to Marlon Brando. Like if I if I had to, not because you look like Marlon Brando, but, but because that's how much he means to me. But that's how important it is for people to just like be in connection with you. Because I, I mean – this information changes people's lives. It makes them understand why they react the way that they do, that, that they're not broken, that they're, they're not born wrong, they're not born broken, they learn this behavior, and it can be, whatever has been wired can be unwired. Can I just say too that our book, um, the Interge Intergenerational Trauma Workbook is on Amazon. Oh, yes. You know, yeah. it's like $14 or something, so it's pretty reasonable and, Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and great to use with a therapist. Yes. You know, and I think great to use when people are leaving treatment, because like we said, sometimes people aren't ready to access any type of form of trauma treatment in right. 30 to 60 right. days. Or even if you have a question, gee, does this apply to me? If you look at if you look at that book, it's a great friendly way to kind of get a sense of if it might be of value to, to think more about this. Wonderful. Can you say the name of the book again and where people yes. can get it? The Intergenerational Trauma Workbook. Amazing. And on Amazon. On Amazon. We'll put a link. Yes. Oh, sure. awesome. Thank you. Absolutely. Such yeah. a pleasure. Thank you for yeah, asking absolutely. us to be here today. Absolutely. We'll have you on again. Um, and again, we wanted to thank everybody for listening and joining in. We appreciate the support. Uh, please feel free to comment, like, share uh, this video and others. And we look forward to having you guys back uh, on our show down the line. Yes. Terrific. Do you want to come you home both. with me? <laughs> yeah. What? I said, do you want to come home with me? <laughs> <laughs> Be my little backpack. <laughs> <laughs>